0: That's a good uh, that's a good tidbit to keep in the back pocket. You know, when when your buddy comes up and says his FTP was three eighty, you say, I don't think your power meter was uh, calibrated there, buddy.
1: What's up, friends? Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and today we have three of us on the show. Dylan couldn't make it, but you'll hear from Andrew, Drew, and I as we talk through the topic of establishing cycling thresholds. This is a big topic, which is why the show is a little bit longer than usual today, so hang tight and get ready to take in some quality information. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a training-related topic in a future episode, you can drop an email to info at com with title, The Matchbox Podcast. Or you can send us a DM through the Ignition Coach Co. Instagram. All right, let's get into it. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, we're missing Dylan today, but we've got Drew Dillman and Andrew Jeanette in the house. What's going on, guys?
0: What's up? What's up? Uh,
1: anyone do any racing this last weekend?
2: So, <laughs> I, as, as our uh, loyal listeners know, I still have a broken collarbone, so... Um, I'm restricted to uh, virtual racing at the moment and I actually did my very first ever Zwift time trial, which you know as more of a sprinter is sort of like doubling down on the most painful, horrible you know uh, thing that I could possibly do. Um, but it was it was pretty fun and it was uh, the impetus for it was that I had to do threshold work I had to do a threshold workout. Um, and, uh, I thought it, you know, being such a competitive person, it might be a good way to kind of <laughs> ease the mental toughness of the, uh, of the workout, but it, it actually turned out to be a little longer <laughs> than, uh, the time and zone I was supposed to do. And by the end, it was actually really hard. And I think my own competitiveness made it even harder because, um, um, <laughs> Someone someone came past me in the last, you know, 1K, and so at the end of my 35-minute threshold effort, I had to uh, light them up. And so I was <laughs> practi- practically, uh, you know, like, gasping for air, you know, at the end of this effort. I had to, like, you know, roll myself off of my bike onto the couch to... <laughs> To not
0: collapse. Right. So, so here's uh, the real question: How much flexibility or leeway do we give somebody as crippled as you, like, to actually give yourself a handicap? You know, like, did you did you maybe like take ten pounds off because you're like, well, I'm, you know, <laughs> my collarbones broke. I need but, a little bit of an advantage.
2: Well, you know, to answer that question, Drew, I, I think that there's like an automatic handicap built in because. My upper body has been atrophying for for weeks now, and so I'm actually a little lighter than I normally am. So oh, so you don't have to lie;
0: you actually are just a couple pounds lighter.
2: I am just a couple pounds lighter. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. it, it turns out that if you if you want to try and transform yourself into a climber, you just have to immobilize your upper body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so and that's then what Ekin
0: Granal has been doing the last couple months, just it, trying to it's make all just a, a better climber.
2: <laughs> He's <just> trying to. <laughs> trying to completely eliminate his biceps packs um
0: (laughs) but you know a video of him on a recumbent bike and it was like kind of scary i didn't know he had crashed that bad and he it looked like he could barely move and i was like whoa like that's that's rough
2: yeah well you know in that respect i'm actually grateful that my my injury wasn't worse because i've been able to Pretty comfortably ride the trainer and like continue to do pretty quality work since the beginning. You know it's, um, you know whereas with like a guy like that, I mean he probably had to start with like, gently wading through his YMCA pool, you know, as <laughs> mm-hmm. his form of exercise. right? Like, <laughs> Terrible.
0: Like Have you seen Payson in you? the Zwift world as well?
2: What what was that, Drew?
0: Have you seen Payson doing laps around Zwiftopia? I bet he's racking up some hours. On the Zwift,
2: yeah, yeah. He also broke his collarbone. Um, yep. You know, that I, I haven't seen him yet. You know, if there was a way that I could sort of like blow a virtual conch shell to like gather all of the <laughs> like, <laughs> the like broke, broken real world, you know, road and gravel racers,
0: so the we conch can of battle. cripples <laughs>
2: yeah. I, yeah, I don't think we can say that word anymore. But um,
0: <laughs> oh, sorry.
2: But yeah, I was hoping he'd show up for the time trial, but he he didn't, sadly. I was just racing ran, random people from around the globe, um, mm-hmm. but to to come full circle on, on my my result or my my race, just um, because I'm sure everybody was wondering how it went. Um, so I, Close you know, I, I told you guys I went all out to uh, to beat the guy who was who was behind me for the majority of the race, um, but I actually, you know, when I finished the race, I was in second. Um, and then I went over to ZwiftPower.com, which is like the where you see all your results and stuff like that. And I actually had gotten bumped to first because I guess the guy who you know won the event was a uh, was cheating. He got
0: cheater. He got oh.
2: got. He got got. Listen to this guy. This is this is my favorite thing from Swift. He got got by Zada. <laughs>
0: So oh, Z- Zada,
2: Zada <laughs> is like
1: Usada, but for yeah. for Zwift, That's, that's awesome. pretty good. I haven't heard about that. Yeah. So can it, you get got for? Is it like uh, weight doping? Like is that part of the doping protocol, or or is it like sh- actual doping?
0: <laughs> How would yeah, they I, test I, that, Adam? I, I, don't, I don't know. know they I test know. your actual doping.
2: I you know I don't know of uh, Zada requesting. Piss samples.
0: Andrew, be careful. Somebody might show up to your front door now.
2: (laughs) Um, But, yeah, they're somehow using, I think they're looking at your your data um, to look for abnormalities. Um, And so I remember in the race, I think this had something to do with it. um, I actually caught the guy in first, and I was super proud of myself. It's like, you know, I caught him after. 20 Ks, it was like, you know, way deep in the time trial. I'm like, oh yeah, I pace is perfect. This dude's blowing up. You know, I'm going to win this thing. And then he just like ram jammed right by me. He went by me at like 100 miles an hour. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think nice. he probably, you know, did like a, a five minute power that was beyond, uh, you know, like what's, you know, what they consider to be possible, maybe. Sure. Mm hmm and it's it's cool because so the like the ultimate rule or like limit that sets off a zada investigation is if you do i think it's it's more than 5 watts per kilo for you know like an hour or i think it's more than like it's the limit's lower maybe than you would expect for like professional racing but it's it's swift, it's different audiences over 6 watts per kilo for Five minutes. Which I could do that. And so now I kind of want to do an all-out five-minute effort on Zwift so that so I get investigated. Get and yeah, well, and then, so what happens is, is if you do that, you have to send them real, you have to do their protocol, like their testing protocol, and send them real-world like outside data with a different power mm-hmm. meter. You know, and then you got to send them like pictures of you standing on a scale and all that sort of stuff. But once once you've gone through all that and they sort of accept your results, you get like a like a gold star. It's like being part of you know, uh, like the 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 uh, what what is it called like the bio passport pool or whatever or like the whereabouts pool and like real yeah. racing. I think that'd be
1: a cool accomplishment. I feel like a real bonafide. That's all you have to do is you just have to exceed six watts per kilo for five minutes. Yeah.
2: So for me, that's maybe 420 watts, which like I can, I can do that easy. That's fine.
0: Yeah. Easy. Yeah. I'm about to do, I'm about to do 10 sets of those today. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> 10, anyways, 10 by five at 450. <laughs> Let's go.
0: Um, it's kind of funny that like two years ago, Zada didn't exist and now there's like this whole department in the Zwift office dedicated to to catching the Zwift dopers. You know, like, that's pretty cool. Like Corona just creating more, more jobs the ZADA investigation team is now a real thing.
2: <laughs> I think it's even worse than that. I think it's, I think it's like an independent organization.
0: <laughs> oh, that they're hiring out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a like subsidiary. They have like independent of, uh, WADA. investigators. I don't know if Dick WADA. Pound is involved, but maybe.
0: All right. Well, That's awesome. I didn't um, race. Adam, okay, you didn't so, race.
1: <laughs> yeah. I didn't do any racing this past weekend.
0: Uh, and Andrew basically didn't race. I mean, if you, You'd
1: so how long was it so 35 the minute effort so what was it like 25k or something
0: um
3: it
2: was 12 miles so i i don't know so yeah what that roughly. What that works out yeah um but it was it was uphill it was a it's like a hill climb time trial mm. and it's okay i, I do have, i have a smart trainer and so it, it sort of is uh varying the The resistance, depending on the grade, so it was actually—it's pretty cool. It's like, I mean, the effort feels sort of similar to, you know, what you would do if you were racing up a mountain outside.
1: Sweet. Well, congrats on being a virtual winner. Thank you. I posted Uh, up. (laughs) I bet you did.
2: (laughs) Took a picture and I I I I snapped. I sent to all the other dudes. I was like, in your
1: face. uh it's awesome uh so let's go on to the next segment what you training for obviously andrew's training to be indoor itt world champion mm-hmm. that's um let's start with drew what, what are you training for these days
0: um yeah last week i did the the double so i'm still trying to manage recovery with that so last week i didn't do any intensity just some endurance but then uh Got out Saturday for some threshold intervals, so I just started my threshold block of training after a week of basically, well, I mean, really just two weeks of not doing any intervals because I didn't didn't do any intervals going into the mid south, didn't do any intervals after the mid south, so it's been about two weeks since I've done any kind of intensity, if you besides the races last weekend, which which were quite a bit of intensity, anyways. But um, so yeah, I did some threshold this weekend. It went well. Uh, got some more, I've been playing around with those workouts too. Cause a couple of my athletes are in that block as well. Like the end of base training where we're starting to tap into that threshold zone. And I was, I was working with a female athlete of mine, Erin, and it I've been, you know, I've been using a lot of the same workouts for years now. And so I'm trying to think of fun ways to mix it up a bit. Um, so with her, I was talking to her, And we decided to experiment with a new workout called the upper threshold workout. And so instead of threshold typically is usually from like 93% to 105% of your threshold. Uh, I told her and, and I think last week she did some 10 or 12 minute efforts at that level. And I was doing when I did it last week, I did 15 minute intervals. So this week, We 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 toned it down to eight minute intervals, but we're going to up the intensity to that upper range of threshold, so uh, closer to like hundred to hundred and five percent, so at threshold or even a little bit above it, Um, but still keeping them pretty long, like eight minutes. And so it went well. She said that uh, she enjoyed it, and I'm going to actually do that workout later today. So uh, yeah, it's always fun to like mix things up. But yeah, I'm training. So do you still
1: try and target the same? total duration in zone then so like let's say instead of doing three by 15 are you going to do six by eight or five by eight um, try, um try and still I, target the same cumulative duration yeah i think
0: it's a, a hair less so in the way that i would progress on my own last time i did 60 minutes of time in zone so this time i'd probably shoot for like 75 to 80 minutes of time in zone um Cause I've done that before. So I know I can go like all the way up to 80 minutes of threshold. Uh, but with this one today, I think I'm only doing like 50 something minutes, like 54 minutes of time and zone because it's okay. higher.
1: To You're doing like seven by eight.
0: I think today. Uh, Oh no, no, today I'm doing six by eight, but I'm mixing in some sprints as well. Okay. I'm trying to get ready for crit season.
2: Cool. Yeah, just so it's not too, too easy for him. <laughs> and then tomorrow that's he's going to do, I, the, he's gonna do the, the 5, 10 by 5 at
0: 120%. No, I've been, I've been trying to mix in more sprint practice because that's something I never work on uh, is sprinting because it's like never been something that important to me. But now that I'm doing crits, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should work on that. And there were a couple times last year where Texas Red House was like, well, Drew, you're a sprinter. And I'm like, I'm not a sprinter. Like, But nobody else was good at sprinting and I was the most poppy i guess i don't know um so just in case that happens again this year Mm -hmm. uh i want to be a little bit more prepared so i've been throwing in like two or three sprints before my workout and after my workout to try and replicate fresh sprints and fatigued sprints so yeah um but yeah i'm training this weekend we're racing at barry rubay uh not really kind of just training through that and then the first big crit is in three weeks that's sunny king uh hopefully i'll be going down to that
1: sweet so you got Barry Roubaix this weekend. Have you looked at the star list at all to see who's some top contenders?
0: Um, no, I know Alexi Vermeulen will be there, I'm pretty sure, and he was the uh, split winner from last year. Last year they had to give it a tie between him and Hugo Scala. I don't know if Hugo's racing it or not, but they had to split the first place. Yeah, because they were sprinting for the win, these two riders, and – either there was a crash or somebody ran out. And so one guy stopped sprinting and the other one kept sprinting. And there was no way to like, you can't redo the sprint. It once it's done, it's done. And the official was out there like telling them not to sprint. And so it was just bad. So they were just like, okay, you both, you both win, which is just unfortunate. But this year they, they, To try and eliminate that, and this has always been a problem at Barrier Bay, is there's there's like five different race distances, and they all finish on the same last five miles. So the 63 mile race, which is like where all the pros are racing, uh, like once you hit the last five miles, you're just blowing through all of these. Amateur riders that are doing the 30, the 35 mile race. And so you're just like weaving in and out of people. And then if a break goes, it's like, you can't even tell where the break is because there's all these people on the road. So they did split it. And this year the 63 mile race has its own finish apart from the other ones. So that's like a really good call. I'm glad that they made that, made that decision.
2: I, you know, so the year that I did it, this was maybe like 2018. I was doing the 62 mile race and we were catching people like Mm -hmm. all throughout the last 10 or 15 K and our race in particular, was sort of blown up at that point. Um, and I loved it. I thought that was so much
0: fun. Like I I was there. Were you? I think we might've been in the same group. That's crazy.
2: I think, I think you're actually right. Where, where did you finish? You weren't on the podium.
0: Um, What? Oh, I was in the main group and tried to take a one mile flyer before the finish. Cause like two other guys had already rode off the front and I'm like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And, uh, it didn't work. They, everybody just sat on my, like chased me down. And then I didn't have anything for the sprint like a mile later. So I think I got like 10th or 12th or something like that. Yeah. What, what place did you get?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I stood on a box.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, they do like top ten, don't
2: they? Yeah, they do. They do a lot of people, and and it's funny. I forget the guy's name. He he is or was on first internet bank. He was he was an older mm-hmm. guy who was you know had raced on Jelly Belly. He was like a pretty accomplished racer, and we were standing up there on the podium. I think we were like sixth and seventh. And he turns mm-hmm. to me and he says, "This is so embarrassing." <laughs> <laughs> Was oh, that Paul for, uh
0: yeah, Paul yeah. Martin or
2: Paul yeah. something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh yeah. my god. Why would they put the fourth and fifth loser on display? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was still kind of cool. I, I wasn't really that upset by it, but, but maybe, maybe I uh
0: well, imagine having to it's share much I'm accomplished. Imagine <laughs> having to share first place with somebody. That would be that would be kind of lame too.
2: I I wouldn't have stood for that. I would have demanded that we we do something to determine the winner.
0: A, a Zwift a TT, uphill TT like a pill TT, on 50 the
1: yard st- dash. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Just a beer chug. <laughs> <It's
1: laughs> <Yeah>. Totally <laughs> <Anything>. irrelevant. <laughs> uh, all right, so Andrew. Uh, other than your indoor ITT uh, goals, what what else are you training for?
2: Well, so it's. It's really going to depend on how this recovery pans out and, you know, whether or not I can get back outside soon or not. But um, the first potential race that I would do would actually be Tour of the Gila in New Mexico, This is a, a pretty grueling stage race. Um, and so that's that's sort of um, a bit daunting for me because, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I'm really more of a, like a sprinter or like a criterium expert. And so doing a, like a super hard climbing race at altitude for my first race would be, would be pretty tough. Um, however, it, that level of challenge is, is sort of cool for me because it's very motivating, right? Cause there's, I know that there, I need to do a ton of work and need to really kind of get all my ducks in a row to, to, to be able to even probably finish that race given sort of where I'm at. Um, and so, so if I go ahead and do that um, and I need to decide here pretty soon at some point here, I'm, I'm going to have to head to altitude to get acclimated. So um, I'm down in, in North Carolina and, and I kind of came up with a, a pretty cool idea that I haven't heard about other people doing before, which is um, the highest town east of the Mississippi is, um, is near, it's near banner elk, which is where uh, Lee's Lise McRae is. There's a, there's like a little ski town. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the the mountain now. Beach Mountain is what it's called. Mm-hmm. And, and the yep. town of Beach Mountain is at like 5,500 feet, which is, you know, as high as Boulder. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking that maybe I'll rent an Airbnb there and you can go in, and sleep at 5,500 feet. And then, you know, when you drop off of the, the ski mountain, you're back down to like 3,500 feet. So you actually, you know, have the unique opportunity to do the old sleep high, train low, which is sort of like the gold standard protocol for altitude training. Um, so I'm thinking about doing that, like rather than going to a place like Boulder or, uh, you know, wherever else. I mean, there's not a lot of places in the U.S. where you can actually do that. So I think that's super cool. And it's it's only a couple hours away from me. So I feel pretty lucky to have that there.
1: Yeah. How long would you try and go for to induce the acclimation? Well,
2: um, you know, it, it ideally, you know, I would do like, you know, two and a half or three weeks, um, which I think is sort of the, the minimum. I, th- I think you you can maybe get away with less if you're doing the, old, um, you know, sleep high, train low thing. Um, but you obviously run into the, the issue of, you know, having to pay all that money to stay there, you know, and, and sort of right. like taking yourself out of your, your normal life. So I'm not quite sure yet exactly how long I'll be able to swing, but,
1: uh, longer the better, really. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So beach mountain, actually, that's, there's a new pro XCT mountain bike race that's coming to beach later this summer. No way. Yep. Um, it's just a one day, I think it's a C2, so it's kind of lower, Priority race, but um, I think it's like a pilot for what I hope is maybe a future uh, XC Nationals venue. Mm. Um, it's kind of what it sounds like. Some rumblings I've heard of of why they're introducing it. So uh, that'd be nice to get. Right now, XC Nationals is going to be in Winter Park for the third or no fourth year <laughs> in a row, uh, which is at like nine thousand feet, which is absurd. So it'd be cool to bring it back down to like five thousand. Which is still well, <laughs> elevation, but it's it's you know nowhere near, uh you know nine thousand feet. Well, you
2: know it's it's funny because, you know as you're alluding to, everybody was upset that it's been at super altitude for the past three years. Everybody's been been you know yelling at USA Cycling to to bring it down lower so it's a more level playing field. And of course USA Cycling doesn't bring it down to sea level. They're like, well, we can do. 5,000 feet, final offer. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. which would um, probably actually level the playing field less because now all of your guys that are training in Colorado and Utah, it's just like a home race, you know, or maybe even lower than what they're living at. Um, But everyone else at sea level is still going up to elevation. So, uh, I don't know, hard to say whether it's actually better or not, but um, I like to think it's better than... staying at 10,000 feet for a week moving in the right direction. (laughs) Yeah, for sure.
0: Adam, what are you training for, man? Let's hear it. Uh,
1: yeah. So, so I'm kind of like in a little bit of a unique situation this year. Um, I did more fat bike racing this winter than ever before. So what would normally have been like my off season slash early base season, I actually already have like, uh, six or seven race days in, by the middle of March now. So, um, I'm actually going to take the next like six weeks off of racing just to get some quality, like training, like uninterrupted training in. Um, and now that like weather's turning, I'm able to get some higher volume in outside. Uh, so, so my last like fat by grace was two weeks ago. And that kind of, for me, like capped off the winter season of racing. And last week I like transitioned straight into doing a 20 hour training week. Um, which is my first 20 hour week since the like early onset of the pandemic, like 2020. So that was awesome. I like, I was cruising by the end. I just felt so good. Like it just felt so nice to like get a full week of training in for the first time in a long while. Um, So yeah, so I don't have any like real racing coming up until like mid may Uh, we'll have some local races coming around in early May that I'll hop into. But um, I've got some like bigger mountain bike races coming up starting in May and like transitioning from like May through right now, so at least September. Um, so like some big races for me this year, uh, Lutzen 99, er uh, I've got Dakota 5.0, which is like a big regional race. Um, Schwamigan 40 is like a, one of my top A events this year. Um, looking to kind of go and. Hopefully, uh, be in the mix against all the lifetime Grand Prix riders. Um, I did the race last year and it was awesome. Uh, immediately put that as a top priority before they even announced the lifetime Grand Prix. So that'll be super cool. And then, um, still kind of deciding on whether or not I'm going to do a full cyclocross season. It's probably going to depend on some financial support and stuff and see what I can pull together. Um, kind of got the cross bug after nationals last year. Uh hadn't really raced cross for two years before that. Um so I like in the moment was like super stoked on cross. But then when I sat back down and realized how cumbersome the just the task of putting together a cyclocross program is, like there's so much logistics and equipment and traveling and everything. Uh not sure yet. Just seems a little daunting in the moment, but we'll see what I can put it together. Is
0: yeah <clears throat> it's not easy
1: yeah i mean we all know all three of us have raced you know uci cross for many years now and yeah it's no easy task for sure it depends on like the level you want to do it at i mean you, you could definitely just have one bike and drive around mm-hmm. a few local or you know drivable distance uh you know uci races but uh it's hard if you like if you're not getting consistent results and like nabbing uci points like you're just never going to be in the mix and that's kind of no fun for me um so we'll see not sure on cross season yet um one other like kind of uh random thing sort of random um this year is i'm going back to my roots a little bit and playing golf a bit more um so there's this like local pro tour here in South dakota called the dakota's tour and i'm gonna have my hand at uh like pro golf debut kind of go back to like original dream of being a pro athlete which was like to someday be a pro golfer um and yeah it's like super unique that we've got this mini tour like all based around uh sioux falls where i lived. it's like the furthest event is like four hours away um Pretty decent prize money. Each each event, I think, has a minimum of like sixty thousand dollars prize purse, um, up to like two hundred fifty thousand. I think is the biggest one. So like uh, chump change in the golf world, but uh, Dude, pretty high stakes compared to bike racing. So uh, that's come kind of like senses. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, so th- I mean, that's kind of the main motivation. Is like I've been working at this bike racing thing for five years now racing at the pro elite level in like my best year is like breaking even. (laughs) Um, so it's like, if I'm going to keep trying to pursue the pro athlete dream, then maybe I need to look at some other options for income, which golf presents a little bit more financial opportunity at least. Uh, so you're like happy Gilmore.
2: You're like using like, like in happy yes. home where he uses golf to support his hockey, his hockey career.
1: Yeah. I, that's actually you're, you're gonna super use, funny. I, I hadn't thought about that, but it's kind of similar. Yeah.
2: Um, um, do you love your, your Nana as well? Do, <laughs> do <you> have- <laughs> of
1: course, man. Who doesn't love their nanny? That's true. Yeah. Good yeah. Point. Um, and subway. So, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm like I'm like pretty solidly into base season right now. Uh, barely, I, I did like a two week intensity block before my last fat bike race because it was it was a B priority and I kind of felt like I needed a little bit of tune up heading into it. Um, but otherwise, I really haven't done any intensity above tempo this year, um, and even tempo I've only done like four tempo workouts all year. Um, so I'm kind of like just starting to get into. Thrown in a little bit of intensity into base season, but pretty stoked to like have six weeks without any racing and just like build up some, some volume again. That'd be nice.
0: Nice.
2: Hey, one, one quick side note. Um, so before we started recording, Drew brought up this expression to, to jump the shark. I was about to say uh, it
0: in a minute, dude. You kills the you killed the well, boss. Uh, come let, on, let me
2: just let me just uh, come full circle here on this one. So, uh, Fonzie was the one who <clears> said that. <throat> Fonzie being played by Henry Winkler. You know who was in Happy Gilmore? Who had a cameo? Yeah, that's
3: right. Hen- Hen-
2: Henry Winkler was in that movie. Yeah,
1: he did. What You're did right. He, what What role did he, or what who did he play?
0: I don't um... remember. He's always remember in he's in a bunch of Adam Sandler movies. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they're like they're boys. They play golf Oh, together. I guess that's true. Yeah, he is, he is like he but he always just plays like a kind of insignificant role, like a couple mm-hmm. a couple one-liners or something, right?
2: Yeah.
0: So, he, yeah.
1: He
2: played what? uh he played uh, Adam Sandler's daddy in uh, Waterboy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, uh, or the coach in, maybe. And uh, little Nicky, he gets I think he gets attacked by like Bunch of bees or something. <laughs> you know that one, Little Nicky. That was oh, yeah. one of the lesser-known Adam Sandler movies, but yeah, pretty it's funny.
1: classic. Yeah. Loss. You ours. guys ever seen Air Airheads? Mm-mm. That was one of Adam Sandler's like first movies. It's a, it's a classic. Really? Yeah. I'd have
0: to check it out. I,
1: I, I've always been a huge Adam Sandler fan, so I've I've watched pretty much every Adam Sandler film a, a few times. Um, mm-hmm. Airheads was one of the early discoveries.
0: Wow. All right, let's jump this shark. What's today's topic?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the the topic for today is determining thresholds uh, to help establish training zones for athletes. Um, So we're going to talk, like, you know, what are thresholds? uh, How do you determine thresholds? When should you determine an athlete's thresholds? uh, Just the different, like, mechanisms that go into uh, determining thresholds. And, uh, yeah, we'll kind of talk a little bit of, like, Personal anecdote: How we apply it in our own uh, like coaching programs, and maybe even to ourselves. Um, so, Andrew, starting? do you want to do you want to take us from the top and talk a little bit about what our thresholds start that conversation? Yeah. So, like, what, what when are we talking we, about? Like, when we say threshold, um, I think there's probably one like main consensus of what threshold is talking about. But let's let's expand on that, right?
2: Yeah. So, so when we talk about thresholds here, what we're talking about, what these thresholds are thresholds for are exercise intensity domains. So we're, we're drawing the boundaries between the moderate exercise intensity domain to the heavy and then the heavy to the severe. Um, and so we have three, three categories of, of exercise intensities. Um, And we're putting two thresholds in there. So there's, in the the literature, they just refer to this as lactate threshold. This is LT1. A lot of coaches will call it your aerobic threshold. Um, And then in like a traditional six-zone system, it's the boundary between zone two and zone three. Um, And then the second threshold that separates the heavy um, exercise intensity domain from the severe is, is what we, you know, what the public typically considers their lactate threshold, their FTP. In the scientific literature, they, they often talk about this as critical power or the, uh, maximum lactate steady state. So that's the, the highest intensity where like a metabolic steady state can occur above which, um, you know, fatigue or, uh, Um, like you can no longer keep going for very long. So you start to be exhausted very, very quickly. Um, and in each of these boundaries, the way that they're determined is based on physiological changes that are happening in your body. So they, they not only like help us, um, separate out how hard we're working, but they also sort of describe, um, you know, what's happening metabolically. And so, um, the first lactate threshold, LT1, aerobic threshold, whatever you want to call it, um, is the point at which um, we really go from mostly using fats, um, you know, and working purely aerobically to start seeing some um, glycolysis happening, burning of sugars, we become a little bit more anaerobic. It's We have to be careful, you know, kind of using these um, metabolic descriptions because it does you know, vary a bit depending on the individual. Um, and then the second threshold, MLSS, CP, FTP, whatever you want to call it, um, is the point at which, um, you know, we're really becoming like mostly anaerobic, um, via the VO2 max zone or zone five is sort of above this threshold. So we're still, um, working very aerobically, um, but it it begins to become unsustainable.
0: So a good analogy, here we go. (laughs) I love analogies. Good analogy of this would be like, if you're rolling down a road and there's a, you know, there's a mountain climb coming up, the flat leading into the mountain, mountain climb, that would be like before you hit LT1, you know, you're just cruising, having fun. I'm not talking about effort level. I'm talking about the grade of the road. But then usually before you get to like this huge mountain, there's like a little kick up where it like it start, you start climbing, but it's not the climb. And that would be like f- between lt one and lt two where you're, it's like your, your lactate threshold has kicked up some, but it's not like the climb. And then you hit lt two and it's like the climb. That's the steep burning bunch of carbs. But that's the, when you're thinking of those LT levels, you know, each one of those LT1 and LT2 is just a kick up in grade or the burning of not burning, but the uh what do you say of lactate? That the, creation. The use yeah. creation, yeah.
2: Yeah. So it's it's really funny that you bring that up. It's that's actually a really good analogy because you know, if you think about this curve that that Drew is describing, it's it's really similar to like other curves that, that do describe this really well. So the first and most important of which is the power duration relationship, which, you know, if you've been on your training peaks or you've looked at, you know, um, Zwift might show this to you or even, um, Strava, you know, you have this power profile, right. Um, that has uh, duration on one axis and power on the other. And so what this relationship describes is, um, you know, the more power you're doing, the less time you can hold it for. And so we, you know, this curve is is super important. And so just to kind of like add <laughs> a little bit of more math to it, or kind of try to describe this to you guys, um, there's a point where, you know, at a certain power level, that curve starts to flatten out. And so there's a there's an asymptote. Um, and that that asymptote sort of like sits um you know, I don't know, maybe from 30 minutes to an hour, and that's that's where FTP is. Or that's actually specifically, like, how people would, um, you know, uh, find critical power. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, you know, kind of as you get to, like, the super long durations, it kind of slowly starts to to trail off, but, like, at a much, much lower rate.
0: So for our viewers out there thinking in your brains, when we're talking about LT1 LT2, uh, and this is why sometimes video is more helpful than, than podcasts, you have to realize there's two different like charts going on here. So when we refer to LT1 LT2 you, you know that's one thing happening but then you overlay that with like your typical power zones like tempo threshold vo2, power intervals uh, and all of that's going on at the same time but you have to realize that when we, when we talk about these things, it's two different charts. So I just wanted to make that clear from the onset as well. So there's no confusion.
2: Yeah. And there's, there's actually, you know, a lot of different, you know, charts that we could use to kind of like look at this. So, you know, depending on, you know, how you're evaluating this or like what physiological markers you're using to to define these things. And this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit is you could look at like a lactate curve. So like as exercise, intensity increases, um, you know, starting, starting very easy. Lactate actually dips initially and then it starts to go up and then it starts to go up at an increasing rate. Um, and then it sort of gets exponential and eventually, you know, tapers off because you've reached, um, the point at which, you know, you're just going to fatigue. You're not accumulating any more lactate. Um, you could also look at oxygen uptake, um, would be like another way to look at this. So as, exercise intensity increases, your O2 uptake also increases all the way up until it plateaus at VO2 max. That's why that's, you know, like your maximal aerobic capacity is because you can't, you can't uptake any more oxygen above that point. And then, so, you know, if you're not uptaking any more oxygen, you know, above that intensity, then it's becoming purely anaerobic. So lots of yeah, so, lots of curves, <laughs>
1: lots uh-huh. of ways to analyze so be, them. <laughs> before we get into talking about the different methods or mechanisms we can use for finding these thresholds, let's let's kind of talk a little bit about the importance of having somewhat accurate zones or thresholds established. Like, why why does it really matter? Um, why 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 do we even need to know what these threshold limits are, or, you know, as it translates into training zones.
2: So, so the two big things for me, um, are if we don't know what our zones are, then we we can't prescribe the correct intensity for training. So for instance, if we overestimate what our thresholds are, um, and then we prescribe workouts at the typical percentages, Um, you're going to be probably failing workouts one, which is really discouraging. Um, and you're also, you know, you might have enough mental toughness to still actually accomplish the workouts, but you're going to be really overtraining, um, which is not going to be fun in the long run. You're going to burn out. Um, and if they're too low, then you're, you're not going to be training hard enough. Um, but the second thing is, um, if we can get accurate zones and get accurate thresholds, then we can track improvements in those things. And that's, that's really important for us as coaches because it lets us know if, if things are working or not, but it's also really important as an athlete, because you want to see yourself improving. Um, and most of the people we coach, you know, their, their goals are, are about racing. You know, they want to, they want to be faster. Um, but you know, a secondary goal, a goal that is subservient to the first is that, they are able to do more power or hold the power that they can do for longer. So um, if we can't track those changes, then it's, it's, it's really hard to measure progress.
0: Yeah, that's what right. I was going to say. It's uh, I feel like at its inception, it was created to be a way to uh, measure progress. Like, are we actually getting faster? Are we actually getting stronger? And yeah, like you said, from a coaching perspective, perspective that's great because uh somebody signs up for coaching six months later we can say hey look your ftp went from 250 to 270 good thing you're paying me because it's working
2: <laughs> so f- funny side note this is like a bit of a history lesson and i'm not i don't know the full story so I, I won't you know talk too much on this but it when andy coggin came up with his six zone model apparently it was actually originally meant to just be Descriptive, So you would go out and you would, you would do your training and then you would look at that training afterwards and say, Oh yeah, that training was, was like within these zones. Like it was never originally meant to be prescriptive, um, which is how we all use it now as coaches and as athletes. So I thought that that was, that was kind of funny. And you know, maybe we can get Andy Coggin on to talk about the, 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 the real
0: unheard history of zones. <laughs> That'd be good. That is funny though. Like take away this whole process of finding zones and uh, you eliminate basically all structure. Like we use, this is such a fundamental aspect of the way we build our training, like the structure behind it. Like, oh yeah, go like earlier, we are talking about go out and do eight minute thresholds. Like if we didn't have these zones, that wouldn't be a thing. Like we would just say, well, yeah, go out and do like a, you know, hard effort or whatever. Like it, it just brings so much structure into the picture.
2: It does. And it it brings a lot of accuracy to training, which I think is super and super important. If we're sort of using the school of thought that the, you know, what we're doing in training is targeting specific energy systems or like we're trying to, to create specific adaptations um, or like replicate the demands of racing. But if you think about, you know, before power meters or maybe even before heart rate monitors, you know, people would just use RPE. And my guess is, is that back then they were actually, they probably knew pretty well where, you know, like at what intensity they were, they were training at. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm glad that these tools exist. Cause I think that they're, they're really useful, but at the same time, you know, a lot of us have sort of become slaves to our power meters and we're sort of like disassociated from, you know, like what our body is telling us. Um, mm-hmm which is like a a blessing and a curse so to speak.
0: Yeah, I was just about to mention that we we are talking about all these good things that have come from training zones and FTP and one of the bad things I think that has come is now we have a a, a direct clear-cut way to compare ourselves to other people, which is which is sometimes a good thing, but most of the time, probably a bad thing. And so when you get into this mindset of always comparing other people's training zones or FTP to yours, uh, it can very quickly lead to an unhealthy, uh, yeah, just an unhealthy relationship with the whole process.
2: Well, and it's, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, this is something one of our, our ignition coaches is, is researching Robert Stroka, but, um, kind of a hot topic right now in the exercise physiology world is um, describing like what, what differentiates, you know, top pro riders from like not so good pro riders or top U23s from not so good U23s. Um, And what they found, there's tons of research on this. Um, Peter Leo is a researcher in particular, who's written a lot of good papers recently on it. Um, The thing that separates you know, those the best from the not so good is not actually the the power that they can do, or like what their power profile looks like, or what their FTP is, but it's their fatigue resistance, or you know, the power that they can do at the end of a race, or like how um, how little it's um, like depreciated over the course of three or four thousand kilojoules. And so, you know, a lot of riders, like a lot of young riders in particular, get obsessed with these numbers. But that might not actually be the thing that's gonna win them the race. Um, yeah, and right. so, like your power numbers could all stay the same, right? If I'm coaching like a like an elite U twenty three road racer, um, but maybe maybe the whole goal of our training is just to be able to do ninety five percent of his best twenty minute power after four thousand kilojoules. You know, so he could he could improve a ton and actually like go from being the worst to the best in his field without ever actually increasing you know his ftp for instance
0: yeah that sometimes you'll hear of like pro riders like like van art or vanderpoel and their numbers getting leaked or something and wasn't it a couple years ago that when vanderpoel won one of his first big races maybe it was that uh sunny or gold amstam amstam gold or whatever they one of the one of the metrics that they came out with after the race was that he did like 420 for the last 10 minutes. And most people were like, oh yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But they didn't consider the amount of kilojoules he had burned up to that point. And so then then to then do 420 at the end of a race, like what you're saying, fatigue resistance, then in the when you when you look at the whole picture, it was like, whoa, 420 for 10 minutes after he had already like raced his guts out for five hours, like yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's, it's
2: incredible, and so I, I guess maybe the thing that I would challenge anybody who doesn't believe us to, to try and do is is like go out on a four hour ride and do two hours of tempo and like an hour of threshold, and then do it, then do a you know your FTP test, do like a twenty minute test, <laughs> well, and let, let us know how it goes, and um you know and, and think about you know where where like within a timeline races are won,
1: right? Right. Yeah, and what you're what you're getting at, Andrew, is like. The best rider, at least the rider that's gonna get the best results, often is gonna be the one who can replicate that 20 minute FTP test at the end of their ride as close to their fresh numbers, right? So if they did a 20 minute effort at the beginning and then four hours later did another 20 minute effort, the closer those two efforts can be in numbers, the better chance that athlete's gonna have a, a higher performance. And I think that's kind of drew where you were back to is like with FTP, we have athletes that are just comparing themselves based on their training metrics, but that doesn't, that it almost has no translation into race results unless you're looking at some kind of individual time trial. So like it's, it's, it's almost can be just a distraction from the actual goal, which is to get better race results, right? We're not just trying to get better in training. We're trying to, we're trying to train harder to do better in races. So you can't get too caught up in comparing your training metrics and in placing your self worth or you know athletic accomplishments based on that. You know there are bigger goals, which is what we're all training for.
0: Exactly. I had a good friend of mine growing up. He told me that if I finish the race and everybody else is behind me. I might win,
3: <laughs>
0: and I've always might. stuck that with me. I'm like, "That's some good advice, buddy. Thanks for that." Sixty
1: percent of the time, one hundred percent of the time. <laughs> All right. Um, so, cool. so uh, let's, let's, what's next? Let's move on into uh, talking about some different methods for determining these uh, levels of threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, I I heard or read something or listened to something the other day that there's like over fifty different protocols. Maybe there's even 10 times. I don't even know. But uh, that kind of blew my mind when I was like, you know, when I first heard that, I was like, why are there so many different ways to do this? Like, why have we not just figured out the best mechanism yet? Um, and I think it's a it's it's just a difficult thing to achieve. Um, but let's talk about some of the like the most popular ones and then maybe give some anecdotal experience with like which uh, methods that we implement with our coaching.
2: Yeah, so. Um, let's we let's maybe talk about this in terms of like categories um, of of protocols. Yep. So you know, I I would consider this to be the gold standard. Um, is is like some form of lab testing. So there's a couple things that you can test in a lab. You can do gas exchange testing, which is measuring your respiratory exchange ratio, which is have you comparing well, the.
0: Go ahead, sorry.
2: The relationship of O2 consumed to CO2 expelled. Right. And, and the the purpose of this is that you can actually figure out what's happening metabolically, because different metabolic processes, so like um, you know, glycolysis or like burning burning sugars is going to expel more CO2. So like as that respiratory exchange ratio changes. Um, we know sort of like what the body is doing or like how it's making its energy. And so this is sort of, um, I would say probably the gold standard. Um, the other thing that you can do in the lower oh, Hold on, hold of, on.
0: Back to that one. Back to that one. Have you, have you heard of this thing called lumen? Yeah. Lumen. It's like this little looks like an e-cig or something but you blow into it and it like it like measures what you were just talking about it measures your oxygen rate and then it's supposed to spit out to you like yeah like how many carbs you're burning like right now and it seems kind of like what do you call that snake oil or snake what's that yes yeah, snake, <laughs> snake oil it kind of seems like that it seems like way too good to be true uh so I, I don't know if, if that's maybe something that we want to buy Yeah, test well, you know, it's, but that's,
2: that's a big thing right now is like trying to take all of these lab processes that are really expensive, you know, and then bring them to consumers and like make them less mm-hmm. invasive. Um, but like you said, and there's another method that I'm going to talk about in a bit here that that also kind of turned out to be too good to be true. But um, it, it I will say it's it's hard to replicate. The accuracy mm-hmm. that you have in a lab to something that you can just do at home is as nice as that yeah. sounds. Um, and there, I think there probably is in general, like with all this stuff, like a trade-off between convenience and accuracy. You know, we can kind of talk about that balance later. But to get mm-hmm. to get back to the general topic of oh, lab testing, the other thing that people will do is um, blood lactate testing or taking lactate samples. So we all sort of intuitively understand that, you know, as power goes up, you know, we feel that burning sensation in the leg, you know, we're accumulating lactate. So that that does a, sort of the same thing as the, um, you know, gas exchange test. But with both of these things, um, there is some inherent inaccuracy in that, you know, even within the scientific community, there's not consensus on like what the best protocol is in terms of like the incremental test itself, like how long the stages are but also in the analysis of it. So, you know, although this is probably still the gold standard, um, you might get slightly different results depending on who's analyzing the curve and who's administering the test. Um, but that's that's going to be probably the place where we can, you know,
1: have the most valid results. Now, right. Right. the so, thing... So to that point, Andrew, so um, knowing that there is some variability, even within the lab testing across different platforms. If an athlete has the means, the accessibility, the you know, financial resources, the time, whatever goes into consistent lab testing, it is important to find a lab that you can go to for each analysis. And then meet with the same lab director or uh, you know the the whoever's implementing the, the protocol and analyzing the data. Um, it's it's important to keep that consistent even in the lab setting because there there are inherent variables built into the uh, lab testing protocols. Totally,
2: you know, and people even talk about um, like the metabolic cart, which is the tool they use to to measure gas exchange, like being calibrated correctly, you know. And so right. we we use those same tools to measure VO two max, and so you know we've all heard stories about you know, individuals who have like the highest recorded VO2 max ever, like, you know, somewhere in the nineties and, you know, the scientific community is always like, well, you know, was that metabolic card even calibrated correctly? <laughs> and so <laughs> sort of in the same way that we want to use like the same power meter for like testing and training and racing, you know, it, I think what you're saying is, is definitely important. Like we also, we want to use the same measuring stick for, same test so we can kind of keep things consistent
0: right that's a good uh that's a good tidbit to keep in the back pocket you know when when your buddy comes up and says his ftp was 380 you say i don't think your power meter was uh calibrated there buddy
2: (laughs) yeah yeah well i mean it's definitely true you know you like you see that sometimes where there's riders who um you know report to have these ridiculous numbers but they don't do so well in in the races and I mean, there's other confounding variables, right? Like CDA, like your coefficient of drag or, you know, how well you preserved your energy and tactics and stuff like that. And that also kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, the power numbers aren't the end all be all of, of actually racing well. And I mean, sure, may, maybe for some athletes, the goal truly is just to see big numbers. Like everybody likes big numbers, but
1: <laughs> for most of us, the goal is to, to race well. All right, cool. Let's go back to methods. Um, so we talked about lab testing. What's what's next on the agenda?
2: Yeah, so the next category of testing, and this is what, what most of us use and sort of most of us rely on, is, is field testing as will you know, categorize it. So this just means, you know, getting on your trainer or getting out on the road um, and doing a, you know, a, a hard, steady state effort. Um, There's a couple protocols here. There's, you know, the classic 20 minute test, you know, where we we ride as hard as we can for 20 minutes and we take 95% of that number to get our um, FTP. There's also, you know, some people will do two by eight minutes and then take 90% of whatever the better or maybe the second eight minute test is sort of with the same goal. Um, And then you know, a lot of coaches, especially like old school kind of um, tough as nail style coaches will say like, oh, well, you got, the best thing to do. The thing that you have to do is you you got to just ride for 60 minutes as hard as you can, and, you know, hour of power. You know, this is the most accurate. And I, I think to some extent it could be right. Like, you know, what better test is there than just doing the thing itself? But. and and this is, I think, especially problematic for like newer athletes is that there's, there's a skill component to this. Like the pacing is quite tricky. You kind of have to know sort of what you're shooting for generally. And there's also, and this is like the more prohibitive thing is that doing an hour as hard as you can is really, really tough. And even if you do have the mental toughness to, to put yourself through that, um, you know, should you, I mean, I guess the contention being that it would take away from, you know, your mental energy that you can put towards training the rest of the week or the upcoming race. And so, you know, there's some limitations here, and that's sort of what's brought rise to um, shorter tests, right? Like the eight minute or the 20 minute. And then sort of another similar category of testing, which is ramp tests, which have been popularized by some of these like online training platforms so you know, trainer road or um, Swift offers a ramp test, things like that, where you're, you know, maybe increasing power every minute until you you can't go any longer. And so these tests are a lot easier to do, but the issue is is that they might not be as accurate. Um, they might not truly reflect, um, you know, uh, you know what you can do for like a hard steady state, like a threshold. Effort. And it, it does depend on the rider's profile. And when I say their profile, I mean, you know, what, what type of athlete are they? Are they a super sprinter athlete or are they a pure time trialist? And each of those things obviously comes with like a different metabolic profile. So although they're easier, you're maybe sacrificing, um, you know, some, uh, some precision there. And the other thing that I, I actually kind of like about like a 20 minute test is if I'm working with an athlete who's going to be doing threshold or tempo work, maybe they don't have a ton of mental toughness or like good pacing ability. And so the, those tests yield like a lower number than, um, you know, they could potentially do. But it, it actually, as a coach, gives me a really good idea of like, you know, what sort of numbers they can do. So like maybe their threshold is a little bit higher than those tests would, would say it is, but maybe that's, maybe it's, that's good because then when I prescribe training, even though it's going to be a little bit easier, it's going to be something that they can, they can handle and is sort of like appropriate for, um, for their level of, of like motivation or
0: mental toughness. So if you're going to use, uh, use these time tests to put it in perspective, a 60 minute test you would just take your straight number. So I've actually used all, like I've done all of these testing protocols within the last couple of years. So like a year ago, I did a 60 minute test, 360. So I don't do any mathematical, just 360. That was my FTP. And then if I do a 20 minute test, you take 95% of that. So I think my last test was like right around 390. You take 95% of that. and It was like three, I don't know, like 365. So like pretty close to what my 60 minute is. But then your eight minute test, you do eight minutes all out and then you take 90%. And I was always better at those. Um, I can just go a little bit harder for eight minutes versus 20 minutes. And so I always found my FTP a little bit skewed on the upper end, like 375 versus a 60 minute test where it's saying it's 360. So that's what Andrew was kind of talking about, how like different people might be better at different testing and they can skew their FTP one way or the other, um, based on how the, how we calculate those numbers. And then another thing Andrew mentioned, which, uh, which I'm a big fan of is just mental toughness. Like if you (laughs) see the trend going, nobody does a 60 minute test except for like Steven Seiler somewhere over in like, you know, uh, New Zealand or wherever he is, Norway. Yeah. He's the only guy doing that in Um, in country. (laughs) Yeah, um, and then you. But the trend we're seeing is like shorter and shorter tests. To where like now the twenty minute test, I, I feel like is not as as popular as it was. Like when I got into cycling, that was the only test was just a 20 minute test. But now we have the eight minute protocol. We have these ramp tests, which I don't know how long a ramp test lasts, but I'm pretty sure it's less than 20 minutes. Depends on the person, right? (laughs) Yeah. Right. And then, and that's not even 20 minutes all out. That's 20 minutes getting harder and harder. Um, but now we've gotten so far that trainer road has just launched a, uh, you don't even have to do your FTP test. They're like, just press a button and it'll tell you your FTP. And I'm like, man, how weak are we? Like, I don't want to be a wimp. I don't want to wimp out on my FTP test. Like I know that it's going to suck. And that's that, that, that is going to make me better. Like putting myself in the hurt cave for 20 minutes, like all out, like, yeah, threshold intervals hurt, tempo intervals hurt. But when you do a 20 minute test, there's like enough of that, uh, race-like stress that it, that it, 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 I don't know. It just like makes you stronger. It makes you better at like hurting. And I I think that's a real component that we oftentimes uh, are getting away from.
2: Well, and and one thing we also need to make clear here that I sort of forgot as I was talking about this is that, um, you know, the field tests are really, unless you're doing like a two and a half hour field test to determine your first lactate threshold, these 20 minute, eight minute hour long tests aren't going to tell you that first, Um, boundary of exercise intensity right they're not Mm going to tell you lt1 which is which is also an i think an important thing to know i mean it can be derived just based on percentages of your ftp but there might be some inherent inaccuracy there as well however one of the nice things about the lab tests is that they will also tell you that that first lactate threshold um And so I think, I think that that's like another benefit of doing that. If you have it available to you, um, you have the means and and whatnot, but, um, Mm -hmm. what, what Drew is saying about, you know, uh, sort of like the rise of algorithms is, is interesting. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, even before they were doing that, another way, a lot of athletes like to kind of think about their FTP is just by, you know, let's say doing a 60 minute criterium and looking at a metric called normalized power. Right. Um, but (laughs) in this, this, this rings true for like all the things we're talking about here for the most part, but it really depends on your, your profile. Right. You know, like that's, that's nice, but, um, you know, certain types of riders or certain types of workouts can definitely break the normalized power algorithm. And so, you know, if you do, uh, you know, like a super punchy criterion where you're sprinting out of every corner, you know, that form of exercise is, like, very, very far removed from, like, a steady state 60-minute effort. You know, and the normalized power is telling us, like, you know, if we had ridden steady based on that effort, like, what what power could we have held? But if you're a super anaerobic rider, like, if you're, like, a sprinter, you can totally destroy that that number. And so, you know, we have to take these things with a grain of salt although they can be, I think, useful tools in race season where you are putting all of your energy into racing
1: as opposed to, you know, training intensity. Yeah. And another component of that is just the, uh, lack of control that you have. You know, if you're, if you're using normalized power from a criterium, uh, that course might be completely different than, uh, course a month later. So, you know, you can't really compare apples to apples very easily versus doing field tests. That, that, that is the nice thing. If you, you know, prescribe an athlete a field test, you can tell them, okay, go do the same stretch of road, start at the same exact point, ride for 20 minutes, make sure there's no stop signs. There's, you know, minimal changes in undulation of the road. Um, you know, you can try and pick out, uh, or you know spiced out more of the variables that way um than what you get from just looking at uh, random race data because you have no idea maybe maybe you spent right. 12 minutes during that 60 minutes coasting but then a different race you only spent nine minutes coasting um, you know you're, you're you're trying to take an estimate off of an estimate at that point totally
2: yeah you know instead of going back to this, Idea of like uh, what Drew brought up with uh, with Lumen, you know, sort of like these kind of like super like the search for convenience and like ease of, of testing. Um, this there was a new method that came out I would say in the past year, and I was super excited about it. So it was it was using HRV data um, collected from a heart rate monitor and then put into an app, um, and it was this. The thing that they were looking at was this thing called DFR alpha one. So that's um, let me let me look up what that that um, acronym means. So that's detrended fluctuation analysis. So it's the math mm-hmm. there is like way over my head, but it, oh, there was yeah. some really I eat, interesting. I eat some
0: I eat some deflection for breakfast every morning. <laughs>
2: So what we were doing here is we were looking at changes in heart rate variability, which all of our listeners are now going to be sort of familiar with as a method of measuring like our readiness to train or or recovery based on like the amount of autonomic nervous system stress. But what somebody kind of figured out smartly was that you could, um, you know, you could actually measure this in real time or, you know, retrospectively like during exercise. You know, and we talked about this on a previous podcast, and this this kind of ties a couple of concepts together. Um, you know, as you might not be surprised to find out, as the exercise intensity goes up, we're creating, like, more autonomic nervous system stress. And so that's that's one of the reasons why, you know, if your zones are off, if you've overestimated your threshold, and, you, and then you're, you're training harder than maybe you should all the time, you burn out. It's in part because... You know, riding above each threshold, you know, creates a significant more amount of autonomic nervous system stress, which is, which is part of why people burn out. But anyway, you know, it was this really exciting kind of innovation where, um, you know, we could just ride along, we could be looking real time or, you know, at the ride file afterwards and, measure with good accuracy, like where these physiological breakpoints were, you know, it wouldn't require, um, you know, any all out efforts. And because we're actually measuring the response of your body, you know, it was touted as potentially being like super, super accurate. Um, and I was really excited about this and I was doing a bunch of research on, on the topic, um, kind of leading up to this podcast. And a couple of days ago, I was on the blog of one of the kind of the head researchers on this topic, this guy, Marco Altini. Um, and he had this blog post saying, you know what guys, I'm, I'm sorry, but this actually isn't going to (laughs) work. This isn't, this isn't valid. And so this is, this is hot off the press for everybody. Um, but you know, we, a lot of us are really excited about this, but it, it turns out that it, it might not actually work well for all people because um, the, the way that we were sort of um, doing it before was that we were assigning these physiological breakpoints or thresholds to certain alpha one values. You know, of, I think it was like 0.75 and 0.50, um, which is really similar to how. Um, You know, people think about lactate testing. People think about those physiological breakpoints occurring at, let's say, 2 millimole and 4 millimole. Or with the respiratory exchange stuff, like, above or below 1.0. And it turns out that not everybody's thresholds fall at those specific values. So, unfortunately, this method is now sort of um, needs to be revisited. And hopefully, it could still... Work, but they they need to figure out maybe a different different values to use to represent those thresholds. So, so that was that was sad for me. And I I actually I emailed um, I emailed that guy Marco Altini to to kind of clarify some things on that before I um, you know like put the idea to rest. And and he sort of confirmed um, the way that I was interpreting what he was saying.
1: So too good too good to be true at least for now. Right. So so we've talked about the importance of establishing thresholds. We've talked about a bunch of different mechanisms for, you know, attempting to estimate it or estimate them, I guess. Let's, let's get into some of our own personal experience and what methods we typically prescribe for our, you know, our athletes and and ourselves. um, And just, you know, a little more practical implementation
2: Well, I guess I guess I'm on a roll, so I'll I'll <laughs> I'll right. go first. Yeah, we'll start
1: with you, Andrew. So,
2: so two different methods for for describing or for finding each each threshold, or you know, a different one for each. Let's say so for finding MLSS critical power FTP. The thing that I implement for almost all of my athletes is just a 20 minute test. Um, now, if they have lab data, or if we sort of know their threshold from like a 60 minute time trial, um, depending on their profile, you know, I may take 95% in most athletes I do, but in some athletes like for myself in particular, because I'm a really anaerobic rider, um, I actually need to take more like 93% of that test to get, to get my threshold. So that's, that's one sort of important, um, consideration with that is just the, the math of there. um. But with with that, I think the important things are that you're you have a place where you can do a good uninterrupted twenty minute test, and I like to always have my athletes go back to that same place to do it, just to kind of compare apples to apples, like you were saying, Adam. Just so we're we're always using the same measuring stick, and I found that that works really well. And, and like Drew said, I like kind of having athletes have the practice of of pacing that effort because I think that that. As benefits for racing. Um, and then for the first threshold, um, I, I actually don't do anything fancy at all. I just have them do what I call the talk test. Um, and so when we were talking about you know, the respiratory exchange ratio, um, you know, as we go over that first threshold, we begin to expel a lot more carbon dioxide. And that can actually be manifested And like detected pretty easily just in our breathing. And so, you know, when that carbon dioxide, you know, um, goes up our breathing also has to go up because we have to breathe out that, that carbon dioxide. And so, um, the talk test is simply, um, you know, you can carry on a, a conversation with your buddies, um, without, you know, gasping for air or needing to take a huge breath. We know that you're under your, your aerobic threshold or your lt one. And so I, you know, I have athletes use this, you know, for all of their endurance rides and it's, all it requires is that you sort of pay attention to your, to your ventilation. Um, you know, and, and I find that this is, is really accurate and it's also a dynamic tool in that it, it allows for that to change on a daily basis. Um, you know, we can still kind of stay, stay in that zone, even if, even if on a particular day lt one is a little up or a little down Um, so it kind
1: of keeps us rolling keeps us where we need to be. So I'm curious on that. Do you, do you, uh, encourage your athletes to talk to themselves then if they're out training alone?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good question. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, um, I read a really interesting sort of more like an infographic, um, than like a paper, but it, (laughs) It was describing the methods for, for like using this tool um, to test where your LT1 is. And what they said is that you should, you know, increase wattage by, let's say, you know, 10 or 15 watts every few minutes. And during each stage, you were supposed to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And if you could <laughs> recite the Pledge of Allegiance or like whatever, you know, 10, 15 word phrase um, without needing to <gasps> taking a big breath you you were below lt1 um what what i encourage though is is just if you're doing base um you're doing a lot of like you know endurance riding is that you should ride with friends i think that's like that's it's it's amazing it's like a self-regulatory tool and it makes it more fun and if you're doing long hours it's it's nice to do with other people
1: yeah yeah totally um, yeah, no, cool. I like that. I, I like the idea of, you know, going back to the 20 minute test, you know, it's consistent. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what I do with my athletes. Um, and it's somewhat similar. I don't do the talk test. That might be something that I start to implement. Um, generally, like if I'm trying to get an athlete to ride under lt one or, you know, just do an endurance miles, um, I just try and encourage them not to ride too hard and it, and it doesn't really go too much beyond that. For the most part, I feel like if you tell an athlete not to ride too hard and you, and you let them know that it's okay, that today can be a lower wattage day for the most part, if you give them that permission, they usually follow it for the, you know, obviously there's contours in the roads and if they're riding with friends. There's accelerations and stuff, but, um, I tried not to get too caught up in like, you have to be under this specific wattage because you do that on your other days. And if you're looking at your power meter computer, every single ride, every single minute of every ride, it's like, it's just overwhelming. Um, but anyway, so going back to like the LT2, like establishing FTP, um, I tried to do the 20 minute test as much as possible. Um, Some athletes though, like they don't have access to a 20 minute section of road or climb or something that's consistent. Um, and i found that like, if you can't control it very well, then doing the 20 minute over like a shorter effort isn't probably beneficial. And I'd rather not have athletes like do their FTP test on the trainer, but then do all of their training outside. Uh, I just find that there's, There's also inconsistencies there. Even if you're using the same power meter and you're using a smart trainer or whatever, um, indoor versus outdoor, uh, there's just like, there's just inherent differences. Uh, if you, if you're not regularly training indoors, you're just not well adapted to that environment. Um, so, so there are some athletes I have that they just do the eight minute test because that's the longest stretch of road they have that they can control where there's no stop signs or stop lights or hills or, you know, maybe they have an eight minute climb, but they don't have a 20 minute climb, something like that, where, where they know for sure they can stay on the pedals for eight minutes, but not 20 minutes. Then sometimes I'll, I'll revert to that eight minute test. Um, later in the season, sometimes just to check in with an athlete. So like if we establish their training zones a a couple times during the base season, and then maybe, you know, one time in a, in a build period, but then we get into like race season. Um, if I just want to check in with where an athlete's at, Sometimes I'll have them do an eight minute test just to kind of a sanity check. Like, Hey, I I think your threshold has, you know, increased a little bit. Um, or maybe it's dropped. Like maybe you've just been racing a bunch and haven't really been training too much. Um, like let's just, you know, we don't have time to do a 20 minute test or something. Um, maybe we'll just do like one eight minute effort at the start of a workout, uh, just as kind of like a, a double check. Um, or all, you know, like we talked about, like, you know, extracting data from a, a race or a hard training effort. That's not really a protocol, but it's, you know, at least getting some idea into where uh, an athlete's training zones are. Um, again, it's just kind of like for me, it's just to check in and make sure like we're not too far off. Because like at the end of the day, every zone is a zone. It's not like a set number. So like there is some variability within that zone. And for me, for the most part, like when when we get into uh, like second second phase of a, you know, build phase and or specialty phase where we're really just starting to work towards peak fitness. Um, most of my efforts are just based on duration anyways. So like if I'm, you know, if if we're trying to target lactate thresholds, um, you know, or, uh, you know, that energy system, I'm usually having an athlete just go out and ride some number of eight to 15 minute repeats pretty much max effort. So like, you know, if it's eight minutes, it's like you're going out and doing three by eight minutes full gas. Um, And that for the most part tells me that they're working in the proper zone. Um, Likewise, if we're doing VO two, like I, I generally will try and pick somewhere in the middle of the range, like instead of eight minutes, which is kind of the low end of the range, maybe it'd be 10 or 12 or for VO two. Like I just love, four to five minute efforts. Um, if you're going full gas for four to five minutes, you can pretty much guarantee you're doing the majority of the work in that, uh, VO two max energy system, um, or zone. Um, so that's kind of like how I prescribe my, uh, workouts later into like a specialty phase is just more so focusing on the duration and, those durations are based on what their specific, uh, you know, race goal or fitness goal, uh, dictates.
0: Yeah. Getting back to what you said about, uh, maybe doing a test, you know, certain things that would, that would raise your red flag to say, Oh, maybe we need to do an FTP test. And there's, uh, you know, several different ways that maybe that would, you know, catch your attention. Uh, one of the things that I always notice is like, you know, going back to like, caveman you know rpe if you guys don't know what that means it means rate of perceived effort and i think that this is a a huge part of the of the um equation that gets left out as well so yeah when when athletes are saying things are way harder than what they should be then that's obviously a red flag that maybe their ftp is set too high or vice you know flip that if if they're saying things are way too easy i'm giving them threshold intervals and they're just knocking them out then that also tells me, okay, maybe FTP has gone up, and we need to retest to get an accurate, uh, accurate depiction of what that is. Um, another one is TSS. Like if, if if they're knocking out like way more TSS uh, than planned, and usually I'll look at a weekly TSS versus a you know day to day. That way I can get a, an accumulative number. So if I've planned five hundred TSS for an athlete and they knock out like seven fifty for that week, I am thinking either they have completely not listen to what I've said. And that's a whole nother discussion or their FTP is set too low in training peaks. And so every workout they're completing is just, it looks like they're, they're doing the workout harder than what they should be. And the TSS is going up. And so some of those are, are things that kind of raise red flags to me. And another thing that I try to keep my eye on too is heart rate. I try to uh, try to use heart rate in, in, in analyzing athletes, workouts. Um, so if I have a good idea of what their heart rate ranges look like, or at least where their max heart rate is, uh, I can gauge how hard they're going during an effort based on their heart rate. And that kind of gives me this whole perceived effort idea of, of how hard is their body actually working to actually put out this effort. Because if they're pretty close to their max heart rate and I'm only giving them tempo, then uh, yeah, something's off there and we need to address it. And I'd always and Andrew was referring to this earlier with the idea of overtraining as a coach, I always err on the side of I'd rather your FTP a little, be a little bit lower than a little bit higher because the consequences of overtraining are exponential. And so if, if your FTP is a little high, that, that could be a lot worse than if it's a little low. So uh, just practically, I I always err on the side of lower.
1: Well, and that, that goes into the, you know, the idea that FTP or, you know, setting these zones are really just for establishing proper training protocols. Like it's, it's not supposed to be some metric that is a predictor of your actual race day performance. Um, if you, if you're comparing it to yourself and you're looking at season after season, that's one thing, you know, you can look at, past seasons or past results and see, you know, kind of where your your fitness level was and whether or not you're kind of on a similar, uh, playing field as, as yourself in the past. Um, but if you get too caught up in just like wanting your FTP to be higher and higher and higher, there might be a point in time where you over tested or overestimated that threshold. And it's a, it can be a huge detriment to your, to your overall training, which your goal shouldn't be to train, your goal should be to have some event or race or something you know some fitness uh, event that be're working towards so like the the goal of training is just to prepare you for that uh, key event so you know I think that's where the danger comes into play with some of these different protocols is like you know if you're constantly overestimating your FTP like it makes you feel good in the moment like you know I would love to see my personal FTP be at 375. Um, but I know that you know, if I do a standard 20 minute test, uh it's probably gonna be more like 340 to 350. You know, so um telling myself it's 375, that doesn't do anything. It's only gonna it's only gonna push myself into a hole in training.
0: Yeah, and okay. another another point to that too is uh and I found myself here about a year ago. I was actually uh having dinner with Dylan on his back porch and we were talking about genetic ceilings, and I was asking him about my personal FTP, I'm like, well, if I'm already at 360 and I've been right around 360 for a couple years now, doesn't really seem like I'm making any more gains, what are the odds of me getting to 380 by the end of this year? And he's like, it'll never happen. And well, the reason that he was saying was probably like genetic ceiling. And I left that conversation kind of demoralized, like, darn, like, I guess I have hit my genetic ceiling, but then I had this whole like, you know, Eureka moment. I'm like, wait a second. FTP isn't like, that's not how you win races. And I thought about all these different things that I could do. And I'm like, all right, my pro career isn't over. I can still, you know, I can still make gains in all kinds of other areas that are required to win races. FTP is one part of that equation. I'm not going to lie. And a, a pretty big portion of the pie probably. But there's all kinds of other things that I can train and focus on to keep developing as an athlete, even if I have met that genetic ceiling, which I don't even know if I have or not. But just to, yeah, just to, you know, always, again, taking the big picture, like racing is not, there's so much more to racing than just FTP.
2: Well, um, <laughs> I have good news for you, friend. We're going to have to look at your numbers here. We're going to have to run them to the old algorithm. But uh, All right. You know something that that people talk about, like with respect to people not being able to raise their threshold anymore, is this idea of like fractional utilization. So that's mm. the percentage of your VO two max that your FTP lands at, right? So if mm. if if your FTP is at eighty five percent of your VO two max power, then the ceiling is is maybe not genetic potential, but it's just that you're your VO2 max needs to be improved because you need more headroom to be able to improve your FTP, right? Because those, Mm. you're you're not going to be able to do your FTP is not going to be 100% of your VO2 max power. Right. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we look at that because for some people, um, you know, your FTP might only be 60% of your VO2 max power. And so for that person, like doing more VO2 max work, isn't going to bring up their threshold, it's just going to i don't i don't know what it's going to do but it's it's not going to maybe achieve the goal that we're looking for whereas if your ftp is at 85 or 90% of your vo2 max power you doing more threshold work isn't going to get you anywhere i mean it might build capacity or like the ability to do threshold more for longer but you need to do a vo2 max block
0: Yeah. I remember you explaining this once before and I totally didn't understand it, but I understand it now what you just said. Uh, that's really good. It's kind of like the idea of, uh, there's, there's two walls and if you've pushed the one wall, you know, these two walls get really close together. Eventually you got to push the other wall. Uh, I used that analogy more so on the mental side of things, you know, our bodies have a, a, uh, an actual physical limit, but then there's also this mental limit and we always hit the mental limit before we hit our maximal physical limit. If we were to be able to actually push our bodies to their maximal physical limit, uh, we would experience tissue damage, organ failure, and even death. And so our bodies don't let us, yeah, yeah, exactly. So our bodies don't let us get that far, uh, except for in some rare circumstances, usually in the heat where that mechanism fails. But um, yeah, usually we hit that mental barrier first and that's what's holding us back. But similarly, what you're saying is like, okay, if my threshold is so high, my VO2 is that second wall, maybe I'm focusing too much on that first wall and then I need to push back on that second wall to make them both go. So yeah, that totally makes sense in, in my head. Maybe well, I need to you hire use my coach.
2: It, it also, I think... And I know maybe less about this or, you know, have like um, less of a grasp on like the mechanisms here. But I I think that that could also work with like zone two training. Like if you just don't, I've experienced um, athletes for whom, you know, they can do as much threshold work or VO two work as they want. You know, these are time limited athletes. You know, these are people who only have 12 hours a week to train. But sometimes, you know, it's the adaptations that come from endurance training that will sort of unlock that next level for them. And so it's actually pushing up the first threshold, you know, mm-hmm. that will allow the higher ones to expand. So it's like bringing the ground up rather than like, you know, moving the ceiling up, um, you know, and well, so, yeah, so that,
1: that goes back to the, you know, like, um, and, and that's where, the, you know, a lot of the debate comes in is like, you know, what is FTP? What are we actually looking for? What are we measuring? Um, but part of the equation is, you know, so when you're looking at metabolic lactate steady state, steady state refers to the lactate level still leveling out, right? So they're, they're, it's, it's still achieving some level of equilibrium. So in, in part of that equation of, of being able to achieve that equilibrium state is the processing of the, of, of the lactate, the recirculation, recirculation of the lactate. And the only way to do that is to increase mitochondrial capacity in any e- economy. So, and the only way to do that is by working in below your LT1 or like the best way to do that is like working below LT1. So like what you're saying is like by doing more endurance, you're improving your mitochondrial function, um, which is why you're able to increase your FTP without actually doing threshold work um, because you're, you're increasing your body's ability to just reprocess that lactate
2: beautiful. Yeah, you know, in, in people like researchers like um Anigo San Milan, you know, talk a ton about zone 2 training, you know, and Steven Siler, like, all these people are like we've all sort of recently realized how important it is um for mitochondrial function and density proliferation. Um and you know, and it's it's not just related to um you know, sport performance, but also really related to like well-being and health because a lot of um, the like health issues that plague the world and our country in particular all kind of go back to mitochondrial dysfunction. So diabetes, um, you know, cancer is is very, very related to um, mitochondrial dysfunction. And so you know, training in zone two, doing this zone two training and improving mitochondrial, you know function density is is not just important for sport performance but it's also super important for um you know our general health and well being and so it's it's paramount that we sort of know you know what that zone is so we you know we have the correct dose because you know i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this expression and maybe drew is gonna gonna know but it's like the dose the poison is in the dose right in in I guess maybe that doesn't really apply here but what I'm really getting at is that if you override that that zone like if you're doing all of your your endurance rides a little too hard you know sort of like into that tempo zone you know we're going to burn ourselves out really quick we're going to increase the amount of autonomic nervous system stress that we're you know experiencing and I think the problem all goes back to this American work ethic that we're all going to you know that that we want to outwork our competitors and, and that we can, you know, if we're tougher and harder than, then we're going to be the best. Um, but that doesn't apply to, to this. You know, it's the thing that I find myself telling my athletes all the time is that, you know, if you've executed your zone two ride appropriately, you shouldn't be smoked afterwards. You know, you being smoked afterwards usually means that you trained, you know, at too high of an intensity or you didn't eat enough. Um, you know and, and we all kind of like that feeling of being really tired after a ride like it brings on a sense of accomplishment you know we feel like we've like done something um but it turns out that it's it's maybe not only like not better but it's maybe counterproductive to always be exhausted after our rides so i think that that's that's an important thing to keep in mind for everybody out there
1: yeah so we'll we'll end with this so <laughs> You know, you talked about work ethic and wanting to outwork your competitors. Um, I I often just use the expression of, like, going really hard when it's a hard day. It's like when I prescribe a hard effort, I want you to go hard. But then the other days you can just go easy and, you know, be okay with that. Like you're saying, don't, you don't have to be smoked after every ride. Um, just be smoked after the right rides.
0: Mm. Yeah. Hard and days, we, hard. We... Easy days, easy.
2: Yeah. Well, and we, we know this too, like everybody talks about, you know, the biggest mistake with, you know, uncoached athletes is that they they always just end up riding comfortably hard and it, it makes their easy days are, are too hard and it makes their hard days too easy. Like they never actually really train that hard. And it's, you know, like you go on your local group ride and there's dudes who are just like blasting the Watts and you're like, Oh my God, these guys are so strong, you know? And then you get out into a race with them you know, that requires that they spend time like over 400 Watts
1: and they're like, they can't do it. It's so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap that up here. Um, thanks guys. This is awesome. A uh, lot of good tidbits here. Hopefully some useful information and ways to put this into practice for people. Um, we'll, we'll uh, catch you guys next week. Adios all right folks thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the matchbox podcast like i said at the beginning you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title the matchbox podcast links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes tune in next week for another endurance training related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event catch y'all soon let's go